Well, hello. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody. And I want to say happy Valentine's Day to my wife who's watching at home right now. She is super pregnant. And, uh, and she has a hard time sitting still for a long time. So she's at home reclining on the couch. We're about to have a baby any moment. I, I, got, my, I got my phone on. So if it rings, I'm going to dart out of this church. And, uh, and I'll just pick somebody at random to finish my message, okay? I'll leave, I'll leave my sermon out, outline up here, and you can just go through it, okay? Does that sound good? We, um, we have an induction scheduled for Saturday. So if the baby doesn't come before then, we are for sure going to have a baby this Saturday, which means that next week I will not be here. And uh, we are going to have... Uh, Peter Laffelbein is one of our council members. He's going to be bringing the word. And Mary, his wife's going to be leading worship. It's going to be an awesome time. I'll be joining you from online, I'm sure. Uh, but I won't be here. And I'll, I'll, I'll take lots of pictures and share them. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll introduce you to the baby once he gets here. I'm so excited. We are uh, in the book of Daniel. For those of you who are joining us Welcome to Afraid of Foursquare Church. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Blake Barnes, and I'm the new guy. Started in December, and um, we are in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. We're in a series called Exiles. And this book we've been talking about uh, is, is not an adventure story. The book of Daniel is not meant to be an adventure story, although today we are going to, talking about, we're going to be talking about a true adventure story. Uh, and it's not a prophetic manual. Even though the last five chapters of Daniel is very prophetic, lots of imagery about the end times, the book of Daniel was primarily written uh, as a book for exiles, for people who are far from home, who are waiting to be reunited with their homeland, and it is instructions uh, for how to remain godly in the midst of a godless world. And so that is the theme we've been focusing on, is how do we remain godly in the midst of a godless world? We're going to be in chapter 3 today. It is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, an exciting story. But this, this, this narrative, this chapter, is all about worship. It's all about who will you choose to worship? Who will you choose to bow down to and pledge your loyalty to, to give your honor to? Who do you choose in life to worship? I'm going to set this chapter up a little bit. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this guy is just so funny. Despite his previous statement that he makes in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 2 last week we talked about how Daniel reveals to King Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation of his dream. And afterwards, King Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement. He says, surely your God is the God of all gods. Your, Lord, your, your God is the Lord of all kings. He makes this statement and lifts God up, but he still doesn't recognize God as the one true God. He sees God as the head of multiple gods. He's a, he, he's, he, he believes in multiple gods, and so uh, he just acknowledges that, that Daniel's God is a God above many other gods. And it's kind of funny because Daniel tells the king about this dream where he sees uh, a statue, and there's a head of gold and a chest of silver and legs of bronze and feet of iron and clay, and he tells him that your, uh, that, that your kingdom is the head of gold. It is represented by this head of gold in your dream dream, but it's going to be conquered by other kingdoms, and then eventually God's kingdom will be established as the one true kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar is almost inspired by this dream because in this chapter, he builds a statue 
an image. And he erects this statue, and it's instead of having these four different metal, metals, he makes the entire statue out of gold, as if to say, no, 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 I'm going to determine who's in charge. I'm going to make sure that my kingdom is the one who stands. And this image that he puts up, it's most likely not a picture of himself, but it was most likely an image of one of the gods of Babylon, maybe Nebo or some, some other god. And he puts this image up there, but it's supposed to represent himself. It's supposed to represent his image, his domain. And so what he does is he, he puts up this gold statue, and, and Babylonian records indicate, uh, they tell us that about the 10th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, there was a revolt happening. And so the reason he puts up the statue is most likely because he wants to see who's faithful to his empire. He wants to see whose loyalty he has, because he's conquered. Babylon at this time has, has already conquered Assyria. They've conquered Egypt. They've destroyed Jerusalem. So they have exiles from all over, people from all over that are in Babylon, and, and some of them are revolting. And so he puts up this image to test the loyalty of his subjects to see who is going to remain faithful to him. So he puts up this statue, and then he says this, he says, he calls his herald in and he, he brings all the important people in Babylon together and all of the, 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 the people of the empire, he, he brings them all together and he says, when you hear the sound of the music, you are to bow before this image. You're supposed to pay homage. You're supposed to, put, you're supposed to worship this image. You're supposed to bow before this image. And if you don't, you're gonna be placed in a fiery furnace. Now these furnaces are most likely where they, where they would smelt, you know, the gold that they would make these images out of. So these are just giant furnaces. Like, they would usually be shaped like a milk bottle, like, a, like an old-fashioned milk bottle. But they would get so hot. They would get so hot. And so he threatens that if you don't bow before this image, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, here's what happens. When the sound of the music plays, everybody in the kingdom bows and gives their respect to this image. But then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing down. And so they have these accusers. There's these men, these astrologers in Babylon who hate the Jews. They hate God's people with all of them inside. They hate the Jews. And they go before the king and they say, Your majesty, there are these Jews that will not bow down before your image. And they're refusing to pay respect to the image that you've, you've put up. And the king becomes furious. And he calls the, the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in front of him. And he asks them, is this true? Is this true that you're not going to bow before my, my image? And he says, what God can save you from my hand? He threatens them. What God can save you from my hand, from certain death? And this is the reply that the three men give the king. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to take it from verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter. Daniel 3, verse 16. <clears throat> they reply, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. I love this next part. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now, historians have estimated that this would have been heated up to about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. This is like a movie. I mean, this is just dramatic. Picture this imagery here. He says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. King Nebuchadnezzar loves to cut people into pieces and turn their houses into piles of rubble because this was the same threat that he gave in chapter 2. He says, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. See, what is being asked of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego goes directly against the first two commandments that were given by God to Moses when he came off of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments were, you shall serve no other gods and you shall not make an image and bow down to it. The first two commands. And Shadrach and Meshach, Meshach and Abednego, they know that this is directly opposed to the convictions, to the law, to the things that God has told them to do. And they say, we will not bow down. But here's the interesting thing, is they could have rationalized this situation. I mean, this is their life on the line, right? This is a blazing furnace, 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. They could have rationalized this. They could have said, well, is it really worship if I don't really mean it in my heart, right? If I bow down before this image of gold and I don't really mean it in my heart, am I really worshiping this? I mean, this is my life I'm talking about. What harm is it gonna, if I just kneel before this image, right? But I don't actually mean it in my heart. They could have rationalized it, but here's the one thing that they knew. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that compromise is the beginning of, of idolatry, Compromise is the beginning of idolatry. It starts with just one small decision. It starts with one small step towards something. With making one little thing okay and allowing just a little bit of sin in your life and eventually that sin snowballs and turns into full-blown idolatry. 
Compromise is the beginning of idolatry, and these three men knew that if we kneel before this, we are compromising the convictions that God has given us. He's told us that we shall not bow down before any image, that we will serve no God but him, and if I compromise, I'll be giving away the convictions that God has put in my heart, the law that he has commanded me to uphold, and they stood by those convictions. Now, I don't think the message in Daniel chapter 3, a lot of people would say that the message of Daniel chapter 3 is that God will always deliver you from the fiery furnace because we see as we read this that these three men didn't even know if God would deliver them, right? When they were talking to the king, they said, your majesty, I serve a God, we serve a God who is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your gods. We will not serve your gods. And so they made a decision despite what was going to happen, regardless of what was going to happen to them. If God saved them or, or if, they didn't, if he didn't save them, they knew that this is worth dying for. That, that, that sticking to my convictions, that, that worshiping Jesus alone, worshiping God alone is the only thing worth dying for. I want to look for the remainder of our time together at some of the characters that we see through this story. Because I believe that each character that we see uh, gives us a perspective on our culture and the way that we respond to God. And so the first character that I want to look at in this story is the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. I think that he's probably one of the most fascinating characters in this whole story. King Nebuchadnezzar is so volatile. He's just so from one emotion to the next emotion. Oh, praise God, I'm so amazed you. Oh, I hate you, I'm gonna burn you, I'm gonna turn you into piles of rubble. He's just so emotional from back and forth. And the king, uh, he, he, he sees the power of God multiple times throughout his lifetime. In chapter two, he sees that Daniel comes before him and tells him, recalls to him the dream that, that only God would know, reveals to him a mystery. And he declares, he, he, he declares a praise to God. He says he lifts up God. Praise be to the God of Daniel. And in this chapter, he sees these three men delivered from certain death, but he still fails to recognize God as the one true God. Don't we think that our problems might just be solved if God would one day part the clouds and speak to us audibly, right? Or, or if he would just do the things we asked of him when we asked of him and we knew that he was there, if we could see him with our eyes, following God would be so much easier. Has anybody thought that or is it just me? I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would have students come up to me and they say, Pastor Blake, I just feel like if I could just see a miracle, or if God could just speak to me, if I could just hear his voice, or if, or if he would just show, show me a sign, and, and I knew he was there, then it would be just so much easier to follow God. You know what I tell those kids? I say, students, think about the Israelites who, who were in Egypt, and they saw with their eyes the ten plagues where God just provided his power, his hand to the Israelites, and he, he, he swayed Pharaoh's mind to release them from Egypt, and they get out of Egypt, and they approach the Red Sea, and they see with their eyes the Red Sea being parted, and they get out at, into the desert, and they become hungry, and they whine and complain, and they see with their eyes manna fall from heaven, and they eat the manna, but they become thirsty, 
So they began to complain again. Oh God, we just want to go back to Egypt. We're starving. We're thirsty. And Moses strikes a rock and water flows from the rock. They see it with their eyes. And they come to the Jordan River. And they cross the Jordan River just like they did the Red Sea. And then they come to Jericho. And they circle the city seven times. And they see with their eyes the walls come crashing down. And what happens? They still turn to paganism. They still turn away from God despite seeing all the miracles despite seeing all the signs here's the lesson that a rich and fruitful relationship with God is only experienced when he is the sole object of your worship he has to be the only object of your worship you can't worship God and money you can't worship God and sex you can't worship God and fame He has to be the sole object of your affection. And the Israelites, they would go back and forth from giving God glory to giving something to erecting a golden calf and worshiping that. God was, was, struggled to be their sole object of worship. And King Nebuchadnezzar is doing this. He sees the power of God with his eyes, but he still fails to develop that relationship because God has to be the sole object of your affection. This reminds me of the parable of the sower that we see in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus, uh, he gives this parable of a farmer who scattered seed along the ground. He scatters seed on a path and he scattered seed on the rocky ground and some in the thorns and some seed fell on good soil. And Jesus goes on to explain this parable and he talks about the seed that fell on the path. That the people, he says this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 19. He says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. See, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced the power of God, but he doesn't understand it because he doesn't have a relationship with him. He doesn't understand what it is that God is doing because God is not the sole object of his worship. We have to make God, we have to make Jesus the only object of our affection. From that flows life. From that flows everything else when he is the only thing that you focus on. His word says to seek first his kingdom and everything else will be added to you. But he has to be the object of your worship. So there's the king. The next character that we see is the crowd. The crowd. See, these citizens of Babylon, they bow to the pressure of the king's command. And some of these people are Babylonians. They have no moral obligation to a higher power. But some of these people are Jews. They were taken from their homeland. Some of these people have convictions that they have given up. They have surrendered their convictions. And so they bow to the pressure of the king because their priority, their single priority is survival. I want to stay alive. I want to be comfortable. I don't want any trouble. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay comfortable. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that I don't encounter trouble. This reminds me of, again, of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. It says, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. They quickly fall away. See, the crowd is much like those who received Jesus but they, because they thought that Jesus would make all their problems go away. 
When, when you received Jesus, if somebody told you that if you ask Jesus into your heart, your life is going to get easy, that trouble is going to go away, that God is going to make sure that you don't experience trouble, that he's going to make sure that you're, that, you're always, uh, that you're always comfortable, you're always taken care of. I'm sorry, but Jesus promised the opposite. He promised that if you follow him, you're going to experience persecution. Staying alive isn't a priority for followers of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said that you must lose your life in order to find it. You have to lose your life in order to find it. See, the priority for the followers of Jesus is to love God more than anything else. To love God, to make him the sole object of your worship. There's the king, then there's the crowd, and then we see the accusers. These men... They hated the Jews. In fact, the, uh, the interpretation in Aramaic, if you were to literally translate what they said to the king, it says that they ate the flesh of the Jews. It's this visual, disgusting picture of how much they did not like the people of God. They hated the Jews. And these three men, they probably would have gone unnoticed. There was a lot of people there. They probably would have gone unnoticed had it not been for these men who were watching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to see what they would do because they were enemies. They did not like the people of God. Did you know God's people have enemies? If you didn't know that, God's people have enemies. I remember, I remember one time uh, when I was in first or second grade, I was at a Little League game. I was on a Little League team, and uh, Pokemon was all the rage when I was in first or second grade. And uh, I remember just growing up uh, n- not, not liking Pokemon because I-, I was always told that, you know, they were pocket demons or something like that. And so I was always told not to play with Pokemon growing up, thanks to mom over here. I, it's, it's, see, the thing about being a pastor with your mom and grandma in the front row is uh, you, you got to watch what you say sometimes. And I remember I was at my Little League game. My mom knows this story, and, and, I, and my friends are playing with Pokemon, and they asked me, Blake, do you have any Pokemon cards? And I just looked at them with all the righteous fury in me, and I just said, Pokemon is stupid. <laughs> and they looked at me, and they said, no, you're stupid. <laughs> no, you're stupid. No. And I remember just being hurt, and I went to home to mom, and I, I felt like, Mom, is this what persecution feels like? I feel like I'm being persecuted for my faith, for standing up for what I believe in. No, that wasn't persecution. That was pressure. (laughs) Pokemon is stupid. See, people act surprised when prayer and the Bible is removed from school. They act surprised when our president doesn't attend or condone a national day of prayer. They act surprised when when the world acts like the world. But here's the thing. People who don't follow Jesus will always act like people who don't know Jesus. Okay? It is the church that is supposed to be the light. It is the church that is supposed to bring the truth to the world and stand by our convictions regardless of what the world is doing. We can't look at the world and get depressed because our accusers hate us, right? We can't look at the world and get saddened and start to feel persecuted because they tell us to wear a mask and that we can't gather more than 25%. I know it's hard, but listen, that's pressure. That's not persecution, okay? People, since these men 
Thank God that he spared these three men. But there are many people since then who were not spared, that became martyrs for their faith. And we need to recognize that we have accusers in our life. We have people that are coming after our faith, that want us to give up our convictions. So don't act surprised when the world continues to act like the world. It's not our job to, to fix our society. It's our job to capture hearts, to change hearts, right? To show them with authenticity and with love uh, uh, who Jesus has created us to be and in turn hope that it transforms our society, hope that it transforms our world. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against people, right? We have people who don't like the church, people who don't like God's followers, but, but there's a spirit behind that. You know that. It's not the people themselves. They're, 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 we have an enemy of God, an enemy of heaven. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We have accusers. The next characters that we see in the story are the faithful three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the faithful. I love what these men say. This is one of those moments you know, when you read the book of Samuel and you, you read the story of David and Goliath and that speech that he makes the giant right before he slays him is, no, I'm going to take you and feed you to the birds of the air and your people are going to serve us. And it's just like this, yeah, go David. How many of you feel that when you read that chapter? Is it, am I the only one who gets all fired up? Come on. This is another one of those moments in, in scripture where you just go, come on, guys, go get it. It says right here in, in, excuse me, verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These men aren't even sure that they're going to survive this, but they're willing to die. They only express that God can save them. They don't know the outcome, but they are willing to die. See, these are the ones who care more about remaining faithful to God than preserving their lives, than preserving their reputations, than preserving their social status. Oftentimes, we value our reputation and our social status so much that we're willing to give up some of our convictions in order to stay uh, in order to stay popular among a crowd or in order for us to look good in a certain environment. I love these men the, uh, because the love that these men have, there's a love for God here that these men have that is more than just an obligation to their heritage or an obligation to their Jewish background. It's a love that's been nurtured every day. You can't get to this point. You can't get to this point and stand before the king of Babylon and tell him, I will not do what you tell me to do unless you believe that there is a higher power behind you and that higher power uh, is someone that you have a relationship with, someone who you have nurtured a relationship with every single day. These men are in exile. They are away from their homeland. In fact, their entire countrymen have, have given in to idolatry and God, elect, God allowed them to be captured by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians. They have wandered away from God, but these men, despite what has happened to their countrymen, are, are nurturing in exile a relationship with God, a faithfulness to God. Despite what their countrymen are doing, they are nurturing a personal relationship with God in prayer, in the word. 
And so many people since these men have given their lives for the sake of Jesus. Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament, he gave his life for the Lord. He was beheaded. Peter, at his own request, was crucified upside down. They wanted to crucify him, but he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Turn the cross upside down. And they flipped the cross upside down and killed him that way. Andrew was also crucified. Thomas was pierced through with spears. Matthias, who replaced Judas, he was burned alive. These men gave their lives for Jesus because they knew that it was worth it. If there's not a conviction in your heart, see, I think we all have to come to a point in our lives where we, where we ask ourselves, would, would giving my life for Jesus be worth it? If the worst of the worst had, had happened, right? If you get to the worst of the worst and you're asked to make a decision between Jesus and saving your life, would you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is that worth it to me? Because I think we would all like to say yes until we feel that heat, right? We all would like to say yes, and thank God we're not experiencing that type of persecution. And might I say yet, because I believe that there's a time coming where that persecution will exist here in our country. But for now, what we're sacrificing is our reputations, our social status, our likes. That's all we're sacrificing now. And we have to ask ourselves, is, is following Jesus worth it? Is my relationship with him worth it? And if the answer is no, then I would urge you, I'd plead with you to spend some time in the presence of God. Develop that relationship with him. Make him not just your Lord and your Savior. Make him, just as we sang this morning, the lover of your soul, your best friend, the one that you cannot go without. I love that Isaiah 43 he had a message for the exiles. And this is what he said in verse two of chapter 43. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What an encouraging message from Isaiah to a people going into exile, to a people, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are facing the flames. They have a promise from God that Isaiah gives them. When you nurture a daily relationship with Jesus, you can be filled with the faith, filled with the courage, filled with the trust to say to anyone, I will not compromise my devotion to God. And the last character that we see in this story, thankfully there is another character that shows up a little late in the scene and late in the narrative. Nebuchadnezzar called him a son of the gods which probably refers to God's messenger. Oftentimes, God would send a messenger or an angel like Gabriel or Michael to speak to his people. And so a lot of scholars would believe that, that who we see in the flames uh, is, is a messenger of God. We don't know if it was Jesus himself or if it was a, a messianic figure, but we know it was a messenger of God, and we know that the presence of God was with these three men in the furnace. Bottom line, whether it was Jesus himself in the furnace, the presence of God had saved them. The power of God have saved them. We serve such a good God, such a good God, and he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. And so uh, for, the, for the last couple of minutes as I close, I, I want to ask you, who do you worship? What do you worship? I, I, I'm doing this myself as I've been preparing for this message. What are the things in my life <clears throat> that I've placed on the throne before him? 
What are the things in my life that I've put before my Savior? How do I tell what I worship? Worship doesn't always look like bowing down or singing or raising your hands. Worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is our response to what we value most. How do you know who and what you worship? You just follow the trail of your time, your talents, and your treasures. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your talents? Where do you spend your treasures? And that trail will lead you to the truth about what you worship or who you worship. I want to talk about time. Where do you spend your time? What activities do you involve yourself in? Worship God with your time by serving your community or by serving your church. I just want to just shout out to the, the men who were here this last week. As may, some of you may not have noticed, we hung up our sound system finally. It was an all-day event, but we had some men who were giving their time and their talents here just serving all day, a 12-hour day. It took all day long, but we have people that were just loving the Lord. They're worshiping God with their time and serving their church. I'd encourage you to look at your calendar. You can see where your priorities are by looking at your calendar. Where do you spend your time? Where do you invest your time? That will show you where your priorities are. That will show you what you value most. Your talents, we need to worship God with our talents. What do you do with the gifts and abilities that God has given you? Some of you are wonderful musicians. Some of you are great uh, with your hands. You can build things, you can do things. Some of you are, are, are amazing with financials. What are you doing with the, with the talents that God has given you? Are you using them for his glory? Are you worshiping God with your talents, with your gifts? And the last one is treasures. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be, al will be also. What are you doing with your treasures? With your money. How do you spend your money? If you look at your bank statement, you'll see what you value most. You'll see what you prioritize. You'll see what's most important to you. I'd encourage you to worship God with your finances. Worship God with your money. Because... There are so many different ways that we can worship the Lord. I remember in my wife and I, our life, when God asked us to start tithing faithfully, it was really difficult. My wife, she's watching online right now. She, I don't think she'll mind me telling this story, but she grew up in a family that believed that, that you don't tithe to the Lord until you don't have any debt or until your, your, your loans are completely paid off. You don't have any money to spend because that money is not yours. And, and this was a conflict in the first year of our marriage because I always grew up believing that. Uh, and the story of the woman who came with the pennies, that was all she had. The poor woman with the pennies came and she, she gave everything that she had, uh, even though it was just pennies. And, and Jesus blessed her and said, that is the way that we're supposed to live. And so in the first year of our marriage, this was a conflict. I wanted to tithe, and she was like, well, I don't think we should be tithing yet. And eventually we prayed about it together, and we started tithing faithfully, and we watched and watched as, as our expenses increased, as we got more and more children, uh, as, as, as uh, we needed to purchase more and more things for our kids. God just provided everything that we needed. We've never been in lack. 
We've always trusted God with the first 10% of our income, and we've just never been in lack. And we, we don't even think about it now because it's, it's the first thing that go out to go out. And when we get the paycheck, it's the first thing to go out. And so it's become a normal routine in our life. But when we trust God with our, t- with our treasure, we watch as he blesses our life. And this isn't like a prosperity gospel. Don't hear me, church. This is a, this is a promise in God's word. This is the one thing where God says, test me in this. That if you give to the storehouse, he will, he will give back tenfold. And you know what? I've just watched in amazement as God has provided for my family in every season of life. So what are you doing with your time, your talents, and your treasures? How do you worship God? How do you worship God? Who do you worship? Can we stand together, church? I want to pray a prayer of blessing. And, and uh, I feel like... I, I just feel like we're supposed to close in a song. So just give me a minute while I get my, I wasn't planning on doing this, but let me get my guitar. And uh, let's give God the worship that he deserves. I'm going to turn off this mic because I don't want two mics coming in. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. Teach us to be like those men who in the face of persecution, in the face of potentially losing their life, would say that, God, you are more important than anything else. We worship you, Jesus. You're the sole object of our praise this morning. Take me from the miry clay. Set my feet upon the rock. Now I know that I love you. And I need you. Though my world may fall, I'll never let you go.
I, uh, I won't see you next Sunday, but I hope that you're here and I'll be joining you online. We love you. We'll see you later.